Hello and a warm welcome from the amazing Silk Road Congress Centre here in sunny and very warm Samarkand at the very heart of Central Asia where we're hosting our 2023 EBRD annual meeting and business forum. My name is Jonathan Charles. I'm a former managing director of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Samarkand, a melting pot of different cultures and civilizations, of course, one of the oldest cities in the region and a perfect place perhaps to seek an historic perspective on some of today's global challenges. What can the wars of the past teach us about the economics of the future? How can we accelerate the return of peace? And what will it take to reconstruct Ukraine after all the damage that has been done? It is, after all, well over a year since Russia's war on Ukraine started. The war has exacerbated a number of unwelcome global trends, rising inflation, poverty, food insecurity, uh, we can name many more. What's next? And uh, this is what we're going to be looking at today. Can history help us to understand the current challenges that Ukraine faces and indeed the ones that will follow when the war is over? The latest assessment by the government of Ukraine, the World Bank Group, the European Commission and the United Nations released in March estimated the cost of reconstruction and recovery of Ukraine at $411 billion over 10 years. So the scale of the challenge is huge. Uh, we have our guests here today. They'll be using the past to model the future. We have Harold James, who is Professor of History at Princeton University. Thomas Kleiner-Brockhoff, uh, the Guido Goldman Distinguished Scholar for Geostrategy from the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Peter Frankopan, Professor of Global History at Oxford University, joins us remotely, as does Fiona Hill, Senior Fellow for Foreign Policy at the Brookings Institution in Washington. And Beata Javorczyk is also here, the EBRD Chief Economist. Before we begin, a reminder that translation in English and Russian is available on your headphones and also on our Interatio app if you're watching uh, online. The details uh, you should be able to see. And we're going to be taking your questions towards the end of our panel. You can submit yours by going to slido.com, S-L-I-D-O.com, and using the code 8349449. Choose War and Post-War Economics, Lessons for Ukraine, and you can post your question there. If you're here, uh, there is also a QR code if you're in the room on the back of your seat to help. Just point your phone and ask your questions. 8349449 is the code for slido.com. But let's uh, turn to our guests now. My first question to all of you, the whole panel, what is the big picture? What's at stake? Does history have the answers? Big questions. Uh, Let's go first to Fiona Hill at Brookings uh, in Washington. Fiona. Very much, uh, Jonathan. Um, actually, I have to make a slight corrective. Um, I'm actually beaming in from Berlin in ah. uh, Germany, where Thomas Kleiner Brockhoff normally would be. <laughs> uh, but I'm here for five months, um, in fact, looking back over Germany's more recent history uh, with the attempts uh, to reunify East Germany, which is quite relevant for what we're talking about here, particularly when we're thinking about what does history tell us. And I'm sure that. Um, We're going to hear from Thomas uh, something about his perspectives as head of the German Marshall uh, Fund uh, about the German uh, and British and the United States uh, perspectives on the Marshall Plan, uh, which was one of the lessons out of World War II about the importance of reconstructing uh, Germany and uh, the rest of Europe uh, after that devastation. I mean, clearly, uh, given what you've just said, uh, Jonathan, about the scale of the anticipated reconstruction, we're in that kind of zone again. This is the second um, uh, iteration, let's just say, I mean, since World War One, World War Two, and into uh, this conflict uh, of attempts to um, completely rework uh, the territorial reconfiguration uh, of Europe. And it's the largest military 
action um, in European territory since World War II with all the devastating effects, largest refugee uh, 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 case as well that we've had since World War II. So I think starting with the history is obviously very valid. I think it's also uh, something that we have to bear in mind as we start to think about the economics that in many respects this is a war about history. It's a retrograde war going back to the 20th century. Vladimir Putin sees this about Russia's historical right as the last continental land empire to keep onto territory that was either conquered or ceded by treaty uh, to Russia going back to the imperial period. And obviously sitting in Samarkand uh, at the heart of a country that was also incorporated into the Russian Empire, this is going to have reverberations around the uh, entire region. But Ukraine is going to look at the end of this war like a very different country than it did uh, both in 1991 when it uh, finally regained um, independence uh, from the Soviet Union, but also from 2021, uh, or a year before the outbreak of this war. Um, we're going to see uh, demographic impacts. We're going to see, the, obviously, the destruction of critical infrastructure. And we're going to have to build forward in a different way, just as we did after World War II. I, I, I'll leave it there because I know we're going to get onto that as part of the uh, discussion, but there is a, there's very much the weight of history bearing down on this conflict in so many different ways. Thank you for kicking us off, Fiona. Yeah, some interesting points there, and I like the, the weight of history. I guess that's really at the heart of what we're discussing today. And, and Harold James, perhaps I could turn to you. You are normally in America. Uh, you're not in Berlin, but you are here with us. Yeah. Sure. Uh, thanks very much, Jonathan. Yes, indeed, it is about the weight of history. And this is a conflict which is like the great wars of the 20th century, the First World War or the Second World War, in the sense that both sides really can't see a road to ending the conflict without the complete political change of the other side. And that makes, obviously, any kind of negotiation very, very difficult. And it makes the prospect of what an after-war situation looks like hard to imagine. Uh, for President Putin, he put it very eloquently just a week ago on the May the 9th parade in, in, in Moscow uh, when he said that he regarded this as a turning point in the history of civilization uh, and that he believes clearly that Ukraine should not exist as a separate country. On the other hand, how is it possible for Ukraine to work with a Russia that is controlled by such a man? And I think many people in many countries, not just in Europe and not just in the United States, see exactly that point. And actually many Russians see that point because Russian history is full of moments in which military defeat produced major political change. Just the most obvious ones, the Crimean War produced the great reforms of the 19th century, the emancipation of the serfs. The Russo-Japanese War produced the parliamentarization of Russia. The First World War destroyed the Russian monarchy. The German invasion in July 1941 almost ended Stalin's regime within days of doing that. Afghanistan was a major contributor to the collapse of the Soviet Union. If that is the case, and that's the historical picture that Russians reflect on, they will think that they too can actually benefit from an end of the war that is not on the terms of President Putin that after the Crimean War, after the Russo-Japanese War, Russia did very well. That, I think, is a lesson also for Ukraine, also for the rest of us. As 
we're going to refer, I think, to the Marshall Plan, but one of the things that the Marshall Plan saw was that you couldn't reconstitute one European economy on its own. And in the same way, Ukraine has got to be embedded in a dense network of international relations, international economic relations as well as political relations. But it seems to me that it's very, very difficult to think of a future of Ukraine that is sustainable with a powerful, malevolently controlled regime right next door to it. Harold, thank you very much. Uh, let's go to Peter Frankopan, who's also joining us remotely. Peter, how do you see where we are and where we're going? Well, thank you very much for including me on this panel. I'm, I'm just sorry I'm not in the beautiful city of Samarkand with you in person. Um, well, I suppose that the most obvious thing is, is that this war is not just about Ukraine. Uh, it's not even just about Russia. Uh, but the escalating effects regionally, globally, are profound. So in the worlds that I look at, of course, uh, in Central Asia, the consequences of what's happened in the last 15 months are, are seismic in terms of what has already happened as well as what might or might not happen in the future. Baltic states, reconfiguration of Scandinavia and the membership of NATO, the opening up of the Arctic and the consequences that will have because of Russia's invasion are profound. If one takes the circle on from that, uh, China, I think we're not particularly good at seeing uh, the ways in which this is not necessarily only good for China, but clearly China's been a beneficiary in many ways, economically, politically, even militarily, over what has happened with the Russian invasion. And that will have consequences that will spill out way, far, way beyond what happens in the corridors of power in Moscow in the coming months or perhaps years. Um, in South Asia, the change of balance between, uh, because of energy prices, wheat prices and inflations, and other things that are not only to do with the war, uh, but have produced a sequence of consequences in the last 15 months that we don't spend much time thinking about, certainly not from a European perspective. So I think it's going too far to think that we've started a new global order, as you sometimes hear from Moscow and Beijing, but clearly the disruptions are seismic in their, in their, in their scale. I mean, just as a postscript to that, 24 of the 54 countries in Africa either abstained or voted against condemning the invasion of Russia last year. And I think that we need to remember that 85% of the world's population don't live in Europe or North America. And how we try to bring them along with the consensus, how do we try to build alliances and a return to normality to stop missiles being hit this morning, salvo at Kiev in particular, uh, horrific. Uh, what it is that, that brings uh, a return to the kind of last three decades that most of the world has seen of, by and large, high levels of cooperation, uh, by and large, high levels of development, particularly in developing countries, and a way in which we have found typically ways to resolve problems. That's not the case perhaps for Libya, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, but largely these have been, post-Berlin post Wall years, have and large been quite good for us all. And uh, those of you in Central Asia based out there will know that uh, what has happened in Ukraine may well be something that uh, escalates towards your region in the coming months and years, depending on what the variables are. But that big picture, I think, is not just having the lens focused on on eastern Ukraine and on Moscow, but to try to see what this means for everybody around the world. Peter, thank you very much. Uh, Thomas, uh, we've already heard several mentions of Germany, actually, in the past, and also the Marshall Fund. Uh, what do you think? Well, if you ask about what's uh, the historical lesson here, I think if you get... One obvious one is you, if you get a, uh, have an aggressor and let him get away with, with uh, annexation, the appetite will, will grow, and it will grow just because you can. Uh, so we've seen this before. Uh, history is full uh, of aggressors who've, who've started and then uh, it took the next steps. 
And in this case, this aggressor has already talked about his next steps. We know from the draft uh, agreement that he presented to NATO and the United States in December of 21, uh, what his next steps in, in his minds are going to be. It's changing the European order and changing the nuclear order uh, in Europe as his, uh, as his fantasy. And uh, I think I might actually disagree slightly with, with Peter when he says uh, it's too far to think about a new global order. Um, it, it's hard to think about this war uh, without the declaration of February 4th. I call it the Beijing Declaration of a New World Order between Rus Russia and China. Uh, at least if you think about a, a, a Russian victory then I think we would be very much closer to a, a changed, a dramatically changed uh, geopolitical setup and the ambition of a, of a new order is, is embedded to that. That is why I think it's so important to think forward to, uh, like in this group, like around institutions like the EBRD, to think one step ahead and to present and to think about a strategy of hope a strategy of reconstruction and a, a strategy of future exactly because it is true what Harold just said, that the parties see it as so difficult to come to, uh, to, come to terms. So we have to map out what a future could look like. Some people, when, 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 I, when I talk about and deal with Ukrainian reconstruction, they ask, well, why are you doing this now? This war isn't go is going on. Isn't this a distraction? And then uh, my answer to that is, no, it's not a distraction. If this war were to end tomorrow, people would ask, what have you guys been doing in between? And just as a reminder, planning for European, uh, the European future uh, started during World War II in 1943. So there's got to be lead time to conceptualize something of the size that we're talking about here, and that is why we should be doing this now. Thomas, thank you very much. Interestingly enough, you know, while you disagreed with Peter, I noticed that uh, Fiona Hill in Berlin was nodding her head vigorously when you talked about the New World Order, perhaps, uh, you know, being already here and already uh, clear as to where we may be going. Uh, Beata. Well, as the token economist here, let me focus on the economic performance. So, of course, the economy of Ukraine shrank by about a third and you know we expect that it will remain at this level uh, in the absence of, of major changes but we can also look at the past to learn what was happening to countries affected by war in terms of their economic performance and in the latest transition report we conducted a somewhat heroic exercise of looking at 200 years of wars um, and we focus in particular at wars between states and wars where a country experienced fighting on its territory. And to create a benchmark, uh, sort of a comparison group, for each country that was involved in a war, we found some controls, countries similar in terms of population size, in terms of income per capita and economic growth. And we use this benchmark to learn about, not so much by what happens during the wartime, but more about what happened 
during reconstruction. So as we continue with our discussion on the screen behind me, you are going to see some charts um, that uh, present the results of that analysis. Yeah, so let, let's have a look then, Beata. I think you're gonna, we're going to look at the impacts on population and also on capital stock. Let, let's uh, have a look at some of these graphs. Absolutely. So, of course, you know, tragically during wars, many people lose their lives. But we also see that the population growth slows after a war. Of course, you know, what you see in this graph, the shaded area is um, roughly the, the, the period immediately around, around the war activities. You see that countries don't catch up with the trend in their population size, at least five years after the war is over. Now, of course, these are averages. Now, if you, we think about the performance after World War I, um, France, Germany, and UK had a population a decade later that was much smaller than in 1913, while in contrast, Netherlands and Spain uh, saw an increase in the population. But on average, um, population size declines and population growth rate slows down. Now, if we look at the chart on capital stock, capital stock gets destroyed during the wartime. And that means that uh, countries have an opportunity to leapfrog. So on the one hand, destruction of the capital stock makes um, countries poorer. On the other hand, the fact that uh, they are not locked into the existing technology, as most places are, you know, for the duration of useful span of the capital countries can leapfrog. Having said that, on average, countries do not catch up with the trend, the pre-war trend, with the comparator group, again, five years after the war is over. Interesting. Yeah, you know, you can really see the impact there. Harold, let me turn to you. I mean, we've seen a couple of impacts there, but we've got lots of historical precedents of countries impacted by war to draw on. What do you see as the other um, potential impacts? Well, I, I, I think the heterogeneity of the cases that Beata has looked at uh, and the, the, the really valuable transition report examines is, is enormous. And so you can think of cases where there's a long, long malaise after a war, actually particularly after lost wars. Um, and you can think also of cases where there's a rapid bounce back, including after lost wars, by, for instance, Japan and Germany. And uh, I, I think if you think of the background to uh, 2022, um, one of the striking features is that Ukraine, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, has not been a very effective economic performer, not very effective compared to Russia, and not very effective compared to Poland. Uh, but, but, but Poland really has soared ahead, and uh, Ukrainians look at that with some kind of envy, because uh, in 1990, uh, the GDP per head was roughly the same in Poland, the, what became the Russian Federation. Uh, and in Ukraine. And so there's an immense potential, if you're thinking of the human capital, for catch-up in the Polish case, in, in the Ukrainian case in particular, uh, catching up to what, what Poland has done. And uh, th that looks like the kind of post-1945 boom that the Europeans had. Um, but I think also, uh, you know, going back to the discussion that slightly started in the first round about whether Russia and China are part of one world order. I think they're actually very, very different in, the, in that China is very committed 
uh, to global connections and to global integration. And they think of themselves perhaps as building a different sort of globalization, but it is a globalization. Whereas what Russia has done since 2000, but particularly obviously since last year, is to deglobalize and to use just one bit of its resources, energy resources, in terms of applying pressure on other countries. But it's not globally connected in the way that China is. And so also for Russia, I would think there would be a hope in terms of returning to the globalized path that China has actually so brilliantly gone on. Okay. And uh, Peter Frankopan, maybe I can turn to you. You know, we've talked a lot about how quickly countries can bounce back, and Harold gave a couple of examples of where there was a quick bounce back. Uh, we've seen, you know, as we've just discussed, you know, large uh, loss of life already in Ukraine. Uh, what do you think about how quickly from history, what does history tell us, Peter, about how quickly countries can come back from that? Well, the, the first question is, how does the war end? Um, and what kind of settlement is, is agreed? Uh, beyond that, assuming that there's a full recovery of Ukrainian territory, uh, I think there's a whole escalator. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning a $411 billion reconstruction cost that I'd have thought is on the low side, uh, given that's for infrastructure. Then it needs schools, it needs education, it needs all the kinds of things that we've seen in other parts of the world of reconciliation, justice, war crimes, accountability. Um, and then, of course, repopulation of the areas where Russian control has been become, become established since 2014. And what the profile or process of that looks like uh, is not completely clear to me in terms of uh, Ukrainian recovery of those territories, whether there's a mass exodus of the existing populations and new settlers, or whether there's some form of accommodation. So I think the variables there are, are tricky to see, but it's no quick fix. It'll take time, it'll take money, but it, it can be done. I think that the, the question we also probably need to think about is what does at the end of the war look like uh, politically in Russia? Um, because of the flight of people from Russia, particularly young, particularly talented, particularly liberal, particularly clever, the brain drain means that the type of Russia that emerges from this um, looks to me pretty broken. Uh, as it happens, as of last month, the life expectancy for a 15-year-old Russian man is now the same as it is for a man of the same age in Haiti, which is one of the most deprived and poor states in the Western Hemisphere. And, and those kinds of things present and aggravate the kinds of problems that have perhaps brought Russia to this place originally. So I think those recoveries are very hard to model against previous wars and to pick uh, examples from the past. But I think it's, it's multi-decade and, and it's not always done easily. But the big question, I suppose, that for, for you in, in the audience to think about um, is, is whether a Marshall Plan or a type of Marshall Plan will be forthcoming, how that's funded. Clearly, Ukraine in particular has a huge importance in terms of potential and likely NATO membership, EU membership, and the kinds of things that uh, Putin has forced, unfortunately, from his point of view, the sort of chronic own goal behind the whole thing. But also, Ukraine has a, has a vital part in the energy future of Europe, perhaps most particularly nuclear. So I think that there is, there is lots of reasons to be hopeful, but these processes, um, unfortunately, are not easy, and they require the pain of the last 15 or 18 months and however long the war is going to go on to be properly dealt with and done so openly. Peter, thank you very much. And uh, interesting question, actually, which we'll probably pick up later on on, on the question of where the financing comes from. Let, let's uh, look now where the current financing is coming from for the war. You know, what does that tell us? What does history tell us, Beata, about the debt of countries emerging from a war? So continuing with our heroic exercise from the transition report, we looked at wars between states and we looked at the main source of financing. 
And uh, some striking patterns emerge over you know, these hundred years of, of wars. So first, we see that the role of foreign financing has increased. About a third of all wars in the post-1945 period have been financed from abroad. That was the main source of financing. Now, the remaining two-thirds of wars uh, were financing domestically. Now, obviously, taxing is difficult during a wartime. Uh, printing money went out of fashion uh, with World War I, so what's left is domestic borrowing. And therefore, it's not, it is not surprising what you see on this graph is that countries emerge with a heavy burden of debt after the war. On average, um, debt increases by about 50 percentage points of GDP. And this burden um, continues for, for quite a while. Okay, and of course at the moment a lot of uh, foreign support uh, is coming in for Ukraine, a lot of foreign funding, uh, and the question remains, you know, how long can that be continued, how long is the political will for that? Fiona Hill, I wonder if I could turn to you, obviously you've been at the heart of government at one stage, what do you think about the political will in the United States to keep huge amounts of funding flowing into Ukraine? Well, look, obviously, this is a big question, not just for United States, but for across Europe. I mean, one of the things that I'm looking at here while I'm in Germany and I've been going backwards and forwards to Brussels is looking at how much um, you know, money has been allocated by individual European governments for their own transitions, not for the war, but, of course, for the, you know, the next uh, economic and industrial transition we're already involved in. Uh, towards a more green economy and away from um, heavy um, energy-intensive industry. You know, in the case of Germany, for example, I mean, there are huge allocations in the billions, tens of billions, uh, for the transition in the existing coal fields in East Germany and in, in the Rhineland, for example, and all the way across Europe, something very similar. And I just want to say here that actually gives us a little bit of hope um, from the perspective of Ukraine, something that hasn't really been uh, raised uh, already, and it might be interesting if Beata has some reflections on this, because Ukraine is, of course, um, like all European uh, countries, uh, a, a country with a complex history, but also complex regional history, a lot of regional diversity. And one thing that I think gets a lot of um, attention in some sectors, but not often in a lot of the discussions that we have, is the agricultural sector. And although we've um, probably seen the destruction of perhaps 30-odd um, percent of um, Ukraine's um, agricultural potential to cause the war because of the seizure of land and territory. We've been fixated on trying to get grain out through the um, UN grain drill through the Black Sea because of the Russian blockade. There's also still an awful lot of potential. I mean, Peter also talked about uh, energy and nuclear power potential. Uh, Ukraine, of course, after France, is the second largest producer of um, electricity by nuclear power in Europe. But Ukraine feeds the world. And somehow, in the midst of this horrific war, many Ukrainian farmers continue to produce. And we're constantly looking at, and this is why I'm, I've made this segue from the question about Western support and financial flows to the fact that Ukraine actually could start to generate some revenues. We've got a, a crisis at the moment of Ukrainian grain getting stuck inside of Europe, which will complicate some of our discussions with the European Union, for example, and, and could have an effect on the willingness of countries to keep on financial flows if they think that Ukraine is going to distort uh, European markets. 
But this is because of the destruction of the infrastructure that was already referred to many times here. We have grain silos, we have transportation routes that have been destroyed, but we could start to think about a strategic initiative, getting back to what Thomas said about planning for the future of Europe beginning in 1943, not just the day after the war ends in 1945, to think about how we could get the Ukrainian agricultural sector back up and running, think about investments in grain silos and storage, other transportation through Poland to ports like Gdansk and then further afield to Rotterdam, for example. We've got to remember that in spite of all of the other deficiencies that we might have uh, identified in Ukraine before the war, Ukraine was literally feeding the world. 40% or so of exports in agricultural products. Europe was buying enormous amounts of agricultural products, sunflower oil and, other, and corn, for example. But the rest of Ukrainian grain, I mean, the bulk of it, was going for export. We could start getting that moving again. And I think that that's the secret to think about and start planning now, rather than worrying about whether the public sector funding will keep on flowing. Because if it doesn't look as if Ukraine's getting itself back on track again, you're more less likely to get public funding. And I know also that there are many private sector investors, people who have talked to you at the EBRD or been involved at the IFC and many other groups who uh, had invested in Ukraine before the war and would like to invest again, especially in uh, the Ukrainian agribusiness sector. All right, Fiona, thank you very much. And I'll come to you in a second, Beata, for a quick thought on that. Uh, Thomas, let me just come to you, though, on this question of support, uh, which will be needed, political support, in order to keep the economic support flowing. I think it's been extraordinary what, what Europe, the United States, and their partners across the world have done over the past year. Uh, we've, we've put this together, I think, 52 billion by Europe and the, diff the European Union and European Union countries, 48 billion by the United States, pretty much on uh, uh, the same level. The idea that you're in April of a year and a finance minister of Ukraine can say to his partners, uh, the, the budget deficit in a wartime budget is closed is, uh, I think, a testament to uh, the, the microfinancial support uh, that has been coming through the, donor, uh, through the donor community. Now, the question is, how stable is that? How, how, how long can this last? We're seeing some... We, we've talked about donor fatigue, I think, for a year now it hasn't been coming. I think you can see some drop off uh, of public support in the United States, less so in Europe. Um, but how is that going to affect each other? So if you were to have a situation when in the United States uh, there would be a drop off, there would be an election, there would be a different political uh, setup, would Europe pick up the slack? That, I think, is a difficult question and hard to, hard to imagine. It's much easier to imagine that Europe keeps on doing what it is, it is doing. Can it increase? It is very hard for me to, uh, to see. Can it stay stable? I think for some time with little drop-off in public support. No, I think it's been very interesting. You know, I often think about the United Kingdom, my own country, and what I hear from ordinary citizens. You, know, you hear citizens complaining about the cost of living, uh, about uh, other issues, you know, with higher taxes. What you don't hear them saying is, that means we have to stop support for Ukraine. Uh, and I think that's been quite remarkable, actually, and, and I think that tells us something 
that I don't see any sign of that dropping off in, in the United Kingdom. And, and I think uh, you know, that has been much more robust than might have been expected, actually, and bearing in mind we're now over a year into the conflict. Uh, Beata, I promise you a return to Fiona's yes. point. Um, so we have seen um, exports of Ukraine going by land, by train, uh, after the EU suspended tariffs. Um, Poland alone, half a million tons were coming every month. Now, of course, that created some political challenges in the um, Eastern EU member state. I, you know, they need to be resolved, but in principle, um, the reloading capacity um, is there, and these, these routes have been opened. So I think um, there is means of, of exporting grain. And of course, you know, uh, we at the EBRD are supporting um, agricultural sector um, and agri-processing sector. It's, it's one of the important areas where, where we are active. Okay, Beata, thank you very much. Let, let's uh, take a look and, and, and examine perhaps uh, other lessons from history uh, as to where we are. And I wonder whether some of our panellists might have a view on which wars are most similar to what we're witnessing in Ukraine and, and what that tells us and what happened next. And Peter Frankopan, maybe I could turn to you first of all. Thank you. Well, I, I wish I had uh, the, the ability to give a two-hour lecture about the many wars um, of the past going back into antiquity, but I, I'll stick to the present day um, because for, for ease of similarity, I just thought the breakup of Yugoslavia is the most obvious one. And I suppose it teaches several things in terms of uh, what the future might hold um, 30, or nearly 30 years on from the end of that conflict with the Dayton Accords in 1995. Uh, Croatia had, had managed to join the European Union as well as NATO and um, things had looked quite good, probably bubbling under the surfaces. As it so happens, uh, the legacy issues of things that were not dealt with at the time have meant that uh, questions around Kosovo, around Bosnia still, and around Serbia, and the reforms that may, may, may have helped accelerate some of the changes to the good have just not happened, and certainly haven't happened as fast and as well as we might have thought. But I think there was a moment during the early 90s in the breakdown uh, in Yugoslavia where we saw levels of violence that had not been seen in Europe since the Second World War, uh, took the world uh, in horror, uh, but took a long time for the West to lean in and to decide what it thought a good outcome should be. And in fact, when that decision was made, uh, primarily in Washington, then the, the, then the conclusion was sharp and it was quick and it was final. Um, unfortunately, like most historians, the, the question now, I suppose, is did the Cold War ever come to an end in the first place? You know, how we fundamentally misjudged Russia in particular and what other mistakes we might be making now means that we, we need to be careful not to overlay what happened 30 years ago in a different part of the world with what's happening now and to judge the decisions that have been made in the last, well, eight years since the invasion, or nine years since the invasion of Ukraine, um, and uh, nearly 15 years since the invasion of Georgia, to, to understand what it is that Russia is up against. And as, as the panelists have already said, standing up to breaches of international law and to uh, declarations that sovereignty doesn't matter, which have not just been made by uh, Russian voices, in fact, most notably the Chinese ambassador to Paris a couple of weeks ago. I think it is a, it is a, it is a calling card now for what it is that international legal um, uh, agreements look like, how they're enforced, who polices them, and that it's not just the West standing up for rights and goodness. We need to bring other states in the world around with us. I think it'll be important to talk about what this means for Central Asia, of course, too, John. And Thomas, uh, do you think are there are any parallels that come to mind here? Well, you know, maybe it's because I'm German. Uh, it, it, it surely reminds me in ideological terms of the German campaign in World War II against Poland and, uh, and the Soviet Union. 
because it was a war of annihilation. It, it denied a state or a people its, its very existence. And I think that's the depth of what we're talking about here. Uh, and that, to me, is, the, is, is sort of a historical memory, at least, that connects these, uh, these two wars. Economically, I, I rather feel this is a, a Putin's attempt at, 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 at another, for, uh, creating another frozen conflict to, to deny a state an area of its economic future. Um, therefore, our response has to be geared towards these two things is to deny the, the ideological goal and to deny the economic goal. Okay, and, and uh, Harold, maybe I could turn to you. We don't really know whether this conflict will end soon, will last a long time. You know, it's very, very uncertain what this war, you know, how this war will progress. Is there a way that history tells us we should prepare for dealing with that uncertainty? The, the most striking instance, I think, of a war that was supposed to be a short war but ended up by being a terribly, terribly long war was the First World War. And there were many people before 1914 who said that given the degree of connectedness between the major powers, in particular between Germany and France, because Germany had the coal whereas France had the iron ore, they were deeply dependent on each other, that you really couldn't imagine a long war and the planning was for a short war. And I think that was exactly reflected in February 2022 that uh, the advice that uh, President Putin was given was about the ease with which he would destroy Ukraine. Um, when that doesn't happen, you need to rethink. Um, I, I think there is a bigger lesson, though, about this, which is that if you think about it in a very, very big picture, what are the moments when, at the beginning, you mentioned the globalization process, uh, what are the moments when it's destroyed, turned back, or when are the moments when it springs up again, but in a new direction. And those moments when globalization, as it were, springs up again, are actually normally after big supply shocks, negative supply shocks. Uh, so the 1970s was like that with conflict in the Middle East. Uh, the middle of the 19th century uh, with widespread revolution and wars. Um, and the First World War, in a sense, was like that, in that people wanted to reconstruct globalization after the First World War. That attempt didn't succeed, really didn't succeed. But after the other supply shocks, there was a spring back of globalization, but it turns in a different direction. And that, I think, is, is actually one of the things that shows a way to the future. And if you think about what the advantages of Ukraine are, we've had energy mentioned, we've had agriculture mentioned, but you should also think, I think, about uh, advanced technologies, computer technologies. It was computer technology, uh, the strong strength uh, in, in software development that allowed Ukrainian software developers uh, within hours of the Russian attack to develop platforms on which Russian citizens, uh, Ukrainian citizens uh, could report where the Russian attacks were taking place. Uh, this, this is a great and substantial advantage uh, and I think is an indicator of the kind of development that you might see in a in a new wave of globalization uh, after we've got, got out of this temporary shock. 
Yes, the technology tends to take great leaps yep. forward during conflicts exactly. and wars, doesn't it? I mean, we've seen that so many times. Fiona Hill, uh, you were nodding, as I mentioned earlier, very vigorously when we touched on the idea of a new global order, geopolitical tectonic plate shifting. How do you see that? This? And what about Russia's place in what it will be some new world order? Well, I think it's uh, quite obvious what Russia would like to see. I mean, Russia is actually looking now to align as much as it possibly can uh, with uh, the former you know, Soviet allies of the non-aligned movement, um, kind of putting a light in a, a different way if you're aligning with the non-aligned. I mean, we've seen um, an awful lot of outreach by Russia uh, in the Middle East and South Africa, you know, other countries as well, um, you know, leading to some uh, ruffled feathers, obviously, in the United States and elsewhere, and also in Ukraine. And I think you know, one of the greatest challenges that um, Ukraine faces right now is trying to get as broad-based support as it possibly can. Uh, Thomas and I were, were both uh, just very recently in a conference in Tallinn, Estonia, where that was really one of the big themes, which is um, you know, how the majority of world countries, it was already referenced, you know, about countries uh, standing aside, as Peter said, um, in Africa and otherwise on um, UN votes, that are not seeing uh, the global implications of this conflict. Uh, Russia has been reaching out to the BRICS um, uh, grouping, for example, um, trying to, uh, you know, basically um, convey its depiction um, of the conflict and keeping countries either neutral or, you know, perhaps on um, its side in terms of the perspectives. And what we really need to do, in, in many respects, is to return to an order, and this has already been talked about by uh, Harold and, and others, where we have the primacy of international law, sovereignty, and territorial integrity. It's something that uh, Thomas said as well. I mean, I think you know part of the mistake that we've been making in, on the United States or on the European front is trying to depict what's happening in Ukraine, at least on politically, as a kind of a great epic battle between democracies and autocracies. Uh, that this is kind of a, a battle of values and that's not really how it's been seen in the, the rest of the world. Ukraine has also been trying to stress, but with um, actually limited success to other countries in Latin America, Asia and Africa, that this is a post-colonial struggle. And most of uh, their interlocutors are not really buying that because they don't know Ukraine's history. Uh, they um, uh, still have this rather favorable view of Russia going back to the uh, Cold War period where the Soviet Union, which Russia is the successor state of as far as other countries are concerned, uh, really supported them in you know, the various of their uh, anti-colonial struggles or in the case of South Africa against apartheid. And you know, this is uh, becoming uh, a real issue. And so in terms of a, a new emerging order, one in which we can restore the sanctity of sovereignty and territorial integrity, but one in which we recognize that this is much more broad-based and that we need to bring in other countries because Ukraine itself needs broad-based support. And I think getting back to what Harold has just said, Ukraine brings many assets to a new wave of globalization. I mean, we know the flows of, um, of Ukrainian grain products. They're going to Africa. They're going to the Middle East. It's going further afield. Ukraine also plays a role in fertilizer and other you know, production. And as, um, as Harold said, there's all new platforms that Ukrainians could be developing. I think we have to try to make a case uh, for Ukraine itself as a global asset, not just part of some new version of a kind of a European territorial conflict. All right, thank you very much. Let's uh, go for another of our economic looks uh, here, Beata. And you know, what about the challenges? What does history tell us about the challenges for countries emerging from conflict? 
Well, there are many. We already mentioned population growth, we mentioned capital stock, we mentioned debt. But the probably most important challenge is finding a stable solution to the conflict. Um, as you see on this chart, peace tends to be elusive. Um, in wars between states um, are frequently followed by another war. So in other words, peace tends to last by a very short time. 20% um, of cases, only in 20% of cases, peace lasts 25 or more years. In all the other cases, there's another war within a quarter of a century. So, you know, if I were to boil down the uh, recipe for reconstruction of Ukraine to three ingredients, I would say you need financing, and that's probably the least of the problems because Ukraine has many friends abroad. You need good institutions. Again, here I'm optimistic because the EU accession process is going to provide direction for reforms. And third, you need peace. You need a stable resolution to the conflict. And as other, the other panelists have already alluded to, um, it's not going to be easy to do that. It's a very depressing uh, graphic as I look at it, really, isn't it? You know, when you look at it in those stark terms, and as someone who spent a lot of time in conflict zones, you know, that, that figure is new to me, and uh, that, is, that is very striking. Uh, Thomas, let me turn to you. I mean, obviously, a lot of talk about what will be required is another Marshall Plan or something similar to the Marshall Plan. Well, if you work for an institution that has yes. Marshall in its name, and it is indeed a living memorial to the Marshall Plan as a foundation, people tend to come to us over the course of the years with ideas for Marshall Plans. I think my colleagues have counted 48 such ideas over the last so many years. It can be a Marshall Plan for Africa, for digital modernization, for agriculture, for whatever. It's when somebody has a big idea and wants somebody else to pay. That's a Marshall Plan. <laughs> That's also why it never happens. Because it is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of what the Marshall Plan was. The Marshall Plan was not charity. The Marshall Plan was strategy. Strategy. Now, it does appeal to sort of our better angels, uh, the, the idea uh, of enlightened self-interest, but it is strategy. Uh, we, we all need to remind ourselves that the Marshall Plan was one instrument in the emerging Cold War. It is not just about the economic development uh, 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 of Europe as a, as a gift by, by the donor. So I think what we now need to think about is three or four things, and I think Beata has, has made the three essential points about what, it, what is needed now. And let me start, pick up where she left off with this, with this last uh, element, which is peace. Um, if we cannot get a peace agreement or a deterrence system long, for a long time a growth trajectory, uh, to the country, and that, by the way, connects to the Marshall Plan because uh, the Marshall Plan was in, in invented, but then countries figured out in the emerging Cold War, this isn't going to just be enough. And the, it was the French and the Brits who went to the uh, United States and said, well, uh, we're going to need security guarantees. 
So the, so the first precondition uh, is that there is a stable post-settlement or post-ceasefire order that, that guarantees some stability to actually get to the outer rings of that graphic that we, uh, that we just saw. The second point to make, I, I think, is, is there is a, a major difference to the Marshall Plan uh, uh, today. At that time, it was one country helping uh, many. Now it is many helping one, and that makes a huge difference because it's not one calling the shots, but it's, it can be a flea circus, and we need many. Uh, we need a big tent for, uh, uh, for this, so donor coordination, and donor coordination that goes beyond just mutual uh, information that has some purpose and directionality is what, uh, and, and strategic thinking included in it is, I think, is very important of it. And, and secondly, in the 1947-48 period, there were no inter international institutions. And by the way, there was no EBRD. Uh, uh, this all was created through the Marshall Plan. Now we have the inverse, and in, in many ways you could even say you have to have a modified or inverse Marshall Plan because you're now uh, working with and through existing uh, institution that you have to adapt to the task. And to do that, my second point would be at least front-loaded, we need a big international tent. It's, to me, it's very hard to see will we have the same type of international unity around engagement around helping Ukraine in 15 years if you're Japan, maybe not. But initially, we're, given the numbers that we're talking about, that, that big tent has to be the front-loaded uh, priority. As we move on, this is going to go ever more into the European Union's court. Uh, uh, since we're talking about European integration, backloaded, we're, we're looking at a ever more European effort. Um, a third uh, point, I, I think, is that we will also front load it, need a public effort. We need to kickstart some things, inject uh, strategy and hope, and that also includes uh, uh, funds into the system to kickstart and enable Ukraine uh, to self-help. It will not work if, if, we, if Ukraine does not become a, a landscape of foreign direct investment, but given its conditions and its, its setup, it can. Yeah, I hear lots of talk about public-private partnership these days and the important role the private sector can play in this, and uh, you know, clearly that will be crucial as well for bringing money in. Fiona Hill, we were just hearing you know, that actually this is not a rerun of uh, post-Second World War in terms of the way money can be funneled uh, into Ukraine. How do you see the lessons of the past? What do they tell us about the difficulties of the future in this, in this area? Well, I think you know, Thomas is obviously spot on. And you know, what was, um, of course, uh, the feature of World War II, which is a massive transfer of public funds from the United States, was also backed up by um, very specific country plans. I mean, uh, EBRD you know, started trying to do the same thing itself um, in the 1990s after, um, obviously, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, learning from those lessons of the past and um, emphasizing, in fact, the public-private partnerships. I think, as Thomas has also mentioned, um, the European Union and things being in the European Union's court, you know, one of the pillars of the European Union is actually regional policy. So another thing that we could be looking at now, and um, again, I was in Brussels uh, just um, a few weeks ago, 
is how Ukrainian cities and regions uh, could already, um, you know, perhaps start to um, take away lessons learned from you know, counterparts across Europe, and could also be in the United States and other countries as well. Uh, there has been a re-emphasis um, over the last few years in the European Union on regional policy. There's a lot of lessons that have been learned in Europe um, about uh, reconstruction and development, uh, transitions away from, for example, the coal industry or kind of heavy um, manufacturing, how you spur the development of what, you know, what Harold was uh, rightly referring to, new competitive um, technologies and businesses. And the European Parliament uh, produced a report at the end of March um, which um, some of you in the audience may have already seen on how you know the EU and cities and regions are already working with their Ukrainian counterparts. So when we start to think, as you just mentioned, Jonathan, about you know how we get things in motion, and this is what um, Thomas was obviously saying as well: how do you get Ukraine into the self-help mode? We could start really pairing up this on a regional and citywide basis, especially with those that are not uh, under uh, constant siege or under um, occupation, and we could start to think about policies over the longer term about. How how to work with some of the more devastated regions in the future. Again, we've got a lot of learning that we've already done um, in similar circumstances. We do know, you know what works. It's also getting the educational, Peter mentioned this at the very beginning, educational system back up and running. You know, Ukraine was actually an educational powerhouse, particularly in um, areas of engineering, in agribusiness, in medicine. Think about all of the students around the world that studied in places like Kharkiv and also in Kiev. And part of the recovery in uh, many European countries was driven by public, private, and educational partnerships. So again, I think there's a lot we could do, and the European Union could do things at different levels that don't have to be at the national level, even now, because they have mechanisms for bringing in partners. All right, thank you, Fiona. Let's have our last economic history lesson, Beata. Yeah, we talk about reconstruction, but actually what we want is a return to prosperity. What does history, economic history tell us about that? Well, the message here is not particularly optimistic. Half of the countries that were involved in an interstate war do not return to the income per capita trend. So we are talking here about trend rather than level. Quarter of a century later, right? So it actually return to prosperity is not guaranteed. The process takes time. Uh, reconstruction of Japan was mentioned earlier, considered to be incredibly successful. It took 15 years. Right? Now, money matters, but if you look at what determines success in reconstruction, actually the availability of funding explains only 10% of variation in the in in whether or not, or how fast the return to prosperity was. And you know, if, if you think about Afghanistan or Iraq, um, where massive amounts of money were sent for the reconstruction effort and not that much happened. So I think we also need to think about ways of how to use the external funding effectively. All right, thank you very much, Beata. Now I see time is running away from us. We've had lots of questions in as well, which we know actually a lot of them reflecting the themes that we've discussed anyway today. But maybe a couple of closing thoughts that I would like to put to uh, Peter and Harold. And, and, and as historians, I wonder how you think when the draft of history is written, how history will look back at this war. Um, Peter, maybe I'll start with you. How, how do you think history will look back at this war? Well, I think it'll look back as a, as a chronic miscalculation of overreach of a, of, a, of a plan that hadn't been thought through and then was even worse executed from, uh, from Moscow. I, I can't see any way in which uh, there's any form of, of Russian win in this. And um, I think that, that coming, coming out of it, Fiona's written and spoken about this as much more eloquently than I can. 
Uh, but I think looking back on it, to see, to see a war started without any credible and realistic goals beyond those of vengeance uh, makes it very difficult to, to see how this can be judged in any other way than, than a chronic example of how autocracies make bad decisions and are not protected by institutions to stop them from doing so. Um, I, I think that it's important just to, just to pick up slightly on the last points about the Marshall Plan, that while we, while we rightly celebrate what happened and how to replicate both Marshall and also EBRD, it is worth always reminding uh, that George Marshall was in charge of the attempts to try to intervene in China at the end of the Second World War and didn't implement a, a Marshall Plan there. And the world would have looked very, very different if the same kinds of principles had been followed in that part of the world today too. So I think that one can learn a lot from the past, but in terms of where we are now, clearly what happens in the coming weeks, I suspect, possibly months, will shape what the future looks like. And the consequences of, a, of some form of peace, which one assumes will be recovery of Ukrainian territory because I can't see any other solution to this, will have a series of knock-on effects to what happens in the corridors of power inside Moscow. And those will be difficult days, I suspect, for the competition for successorship in due course, whatever that might happen, through old age or otherwise. But I think looking back on this, the unprovoked attack in an attempt by Moscow to solve what it perceived as a series of existential problems, I can't think will be seen anything than a spectacular own goal that ended up uniting Europe, ended up strengthening the West, and quite possibly bringing about a series of changes in, um, in Russia that will be so counterproductive that they will look like what happened in Belgrade in the early 1990s. Peter, thank you. Harold, future historians, what will they be saying about this? Well, uh, th th this is actually very much a variant of what Peter said. I think Peter's absolutely right on this, uh, that this will be looked at as a war that was prepared and conducted with just an astonishing degree of incompetence. Uh, and I, I read or reread uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's August 1914, um, where the discussion of the Russian army in 1914 and the way that the leadership communicated with the troops on the ground is an almost precise echo of what is going on in the Russian army in Ukraine uh, since February 2022. Uh, so you can, I think, uh, look back on the issue in two different ways. Uh, people will ask whether the war is just or not. And I think this also goes back to the question of how it's viewed in most of the world. Um, and I, I, I think there's a kind of delicate balancing there because most of the world doesn't like the Russian aggression. Uh, very, very few countries voted in the UN General Assembly vote not to condemn Russia. Uh, many abstained. So there's a widespread feeling that the war is unjust, uh, but there's also a feeling uh, that this is a moment of transition in the relationship of the world with the United States and with Europe. And it's, it's that aspect that I think will get a lot of attention. Um, but bear in mind also with that discussion, where governments look legitimate, and I agree completely with Fiona when she was she was castigating the obsession in some parts of the US with trying to formulate this in terms of wars of democracies against autocracies. I don't think either that's the right way of thinking about it. But what it is, is a combat between effective ways of managing societies and ineffective and incompetent ways of managing societies. And what Russia has shown is just a case study 
of incompetence. If you want to be legitimate, and that's for democracies, but it's also for other, other types of government, if you want to be legitimate, you need to be competent. If you aren't competent, you lose what in China is thought of as the mandate of heaven. And it seems to me that Russia has lost the mandate of heaven. Very powerful final thought. Thank you very much indeed, Harold. Uh, thank you to Thomas as well, Fiona, Beata, Peter. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to all of you online, all of you here in our audience, including many of our Ukrainian friends that I'm very glad to see here as well. Uh, it's been a fascinating discussion, and uh, clearly we don't know what the future will bring, but, you know, the history is a good guide to, to some of the things that we might care to think about as the parameters. Uh, thank you very much for being with us. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can subscribe to our EBRD podcast. Uh, you can download them on iTunes, and, of course, we like it if you review and rate them. It lets us know uh, what you might like to hear about in future. But thank you again, and goodbye.